Well, this evening we uh, come back and we look into this wonderful book of Ruth. We have just seen so many amazing things in this text, and really one of the key components in all of Ruth is this foundation of faithfulness. Faithfulness is a key component in all of our lives, and most certainly we see it so amazingly demonstrated in this text. You can turn to Ruth chapter 1 and verse 6, and as we began last week, which we didn't quite complete, and that may happen again for a while longer, I hope that's okay. Um, If not, come talk to me, and we'll try and get a little more succinct with all of that, but I, I like the opportunity to be a little more free-flowing on our Wednesday nights. And, and I also want to let you know, if you've got a question, throw an arm up. You know, we'd love to interact. This, this is uh, that kind of setting that we can do some of that. So, you know, if you've got something or just kind of want to try to stump the pastor, that probably won't be too hard. And um, frankly, I'd welcome it because I love that kind of interaction. But we began last week talking about heroes, and and we talked about men like uh, Eric Little or Louis Zamperini, women like Anne Frank, and these these heroes in our world who who become to us a picture, an example of, of faithfulness in their particular areas, faithfulness in athletics, faithfulness in persecution, faithfulness in times which require great bravery, and spiritual components in in several of those. Well, again, faithfulness is the key theme in the book of Ruth. And it's so important for us to understand that because we need more faithfulness every day in our lives. There are things that come up. There's news that occurs. There's news of a cancer that we thought was going to go away or that would be a minor detail that there's more to. Our world is full of these kind of things. And what we need to combat those is faithfulness. Because faithfulness brings us a greater trust in Christ. Job situations, financial details, health issues, family issues. All of those require a deeper focus on Christ, which which comes from faithfulness. Well, we saw in our first lesson that God was faithful despite man's faithlessness there in the first five verses. And over and over we saw that faithlessness. We saw the faithlessness in the cycles of the judges. We saw the faithlessness in a father who ran from famine and went to a land that was effectively forbidden. We saw faithlessness in two sons who did not wait to find wives from what the Lord had called them to, but decided to go on their own initiative. And all of this which should have instigated a faithful response and return, and yet did not. And then last week, as we moved into this longer section from verses 6 to 21, we began to see faithfulness occur and we remember that transition that transition word which we're going to see over and over tonight that word return return uh very much in line with with what we know as repentance a turning a, a return only this is now coming back to that which they know that which god had revealed to them tonight we're going to continue on in this text which i had titled faithfulness 
in commitment, faithfulness in commitment, and we're going to go along in this section that we looked at, which begins in verse 6 and goes clear to verse 21. I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, I think for time, I'm not going to read our text. We did last time. We'll just move through a bit more. Trust that you're reading it a little on your own, and that way we can kind of dig into the meat a bit, and we'll, uh, we'll come back and perhaps read the entire section again next week. But the faithfulness and commitment has many facets in our section, and all of them are further confirming God's faithfulness. You see, I think what happens sometimes is our, in our lives is we begin to wonder, isn't it easy to trust God and, and to rejoice in his faithfulness and to accept his sovereignty when things are going well? I am so quick to become fickle in these areas. We've been looking at houses, as you all know. And we thought we had a house all lined up. And, and we went out and we looked at, at some houses. We were going to go to this one last and figured, you know, we just want to look at a few others to get our, our mind's eye together and make sure we're making the right decision. And, and then we're going to go and we're going to make a final offer on this house. And praise the Lord, we're going to have a place, we're going to have a home. You know, I'm excited to have a home for myself and stability. Excited for my bride and my family. And, and we go out and look and we get to this last home. And I'm sure, well, actually it wasn't the last but close. And I'm sure this is going to be it. And... We start looking at each other, and it's like, what were we thinking? It is a beautiful home, but we're blessed to have a lot of friends, and we end up with a lot of guests, and we have two teenage boys. <laughs> Enough said. The house has two bathrooms. Well, you know, if you've got or ever had or ever been around or ever heard of teenage boys, you don't put guests in a bathroom with teenage boys, right? Doesn't work. So that means they come into your bathroom. That's not a whole bunch better. So we realize we need to continue looking. And immediately, I get wimpy. I'm done looking at houses. Woe is me. Never going to find a house. I become weak. I become faithless. And things in our lives can do that, can't they? We expect to turn around and all of a sudden, we become faithless. Well, we got to remember that God is always faithful. And, and tonight we're going to see four facets of commitment that further confirm God's faithfulness. Con- carrying on from last time, again, those four facets of commitment that further confirm God's faithfulness. Now, we saw a couple last week. I just want to blast past that quickly to set our, our context. And last week we looked at the commitment to return in verses 6 to 7. Naomi's commitment is very evident there in verse 6. It says the servant, uh, excuse me, I'll get to the right chapter. Verse 6 of chapter 1, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So Naomi prepares to return. She's done mourning the loss of her sons. So she is prepared to get up and go. Not literally get up, but to actually begin moving and to prepare to return. They were faithless. She's ready to return. She understands God's call. She needs to be back with her people. The nation of Israel is one nation. They are to be one nation in the land, serving the Lord. And all who are a part of that family need to be to be together just very much like we as well as the church are all members of the church and we need to be together as members of the church amen 
Is there not strength in this body? Is there not a blessing to come together? You know, to get to see Miss Mary and Willard again and just, hey, how you doing? Give them a hug and, you know, that's what we need because that's not what the world's got. So we need to be together and she understood this. And the reason was because the Lord had visited his people. And remember that word visit, not just stopped by, but sought out, hunted after cared for that's the intent behind this word the lord cared for his people so he visited them he sought them out he remembered them to bring them bread the the four facets of god's faithfulness that existed in this visit even are there was good news that was brought what a blessing it is to get good news so much bad news in our world so much bad news in naomi's life Now some good news. Then there was also Yahweh's intervention. What a wonderful reminder that he was still active. Keep in mind the time of the book, the judges. All of these cycles of disobedience by the nation of Israel. And God bringing punishment upon them. You know, he he brings the stick. And and then after they've, they've received the punishment for a while, then they repent. And eventually God returns and he relents of his wrath. So it is, it is wonderful to see that God is not forgotten. And this is the time of Gideon, as you might remember, where there became much wickedness following Gideon's victories when this text was written. In addition to that, there was God's grace to his people. That it wasn't just that God returned, but he returned to his people, his faithfulness in coming to those who were his covenant and his beloved. And then there was the provision of bread and another blessing, another reason to rejoice. So Naomi was committed to return and her daughter-in-laws with her. And this was our first point, the commitment to return. But then in verse 8, it started the next point, but we didn't quite get that completed. And that, we went from the commitment to return to the commitment to stay in verses 8 to 14. And you might remember there were two aspects to that commitment to stay. There was kind of a back and forth, a little bit like a tennis match between this. There was the commitment to stay in Moab, and then there was the commitment to stay in Israel. And these kind of volley back and forth, and we're going to see that all the way through this point and into our next one. The commitment to stay in Moab began there in verse 8 of the text. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. These two commands, go and return. Very, very emphatic. One command would be enough. But they give us two, go and return. And of course, our word return comes back to us here for the second time, uh, or actually for the third time in as many verses. So there is this, command and this tough love component that comes forward in the middle of this and she calls them to go back to her mother's house where you remember that some have said that that's indication that this is a a feminist text and they're in a feminist theology is a right approach because they're using the mother's house which is very unusual in scripture but we know that that is not at all what is going on when we look at verse 9 where she goes on and she returns from that tough love component to the tenderness and says, may the Lord grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband. And the reason that we had her mother's house was because there was a safety in that, but more so, the author is very specifically 
painting us a picture from a woman's perspective. Now, as men, we can completely understand the difference between a man's perspective and a woman's, right? Man's perspective, just the facts, Karen. Whatever the problem is, just tell me what it is. We're going to get it fixed, right? Let's truncate this thing. We don't need all the details. That's sometimes not the way women communicate, is it, men? Or more appropriately, ladies. Sometimes they would like us to hear. Maybe they really don't need the solution. Any of you ever experienced that, or is that just me? (laughs) I thought that that deafening silence there for a minute was probably what it was. Um, So we understand that distinction, and the author is painting this picture of Naomi and Ruth from a, a female perspective, so we really get it. We see what's going on. We would understand. Every mother would know of the protection of a mother's home. Not that it was bereft of a father, not that it was a feminist perspective, but there is a safety there. You know, when things were upside down in my life as a young child and my parents were getting divorced and I was eight years old, we went to the ranch. We went to grandma's house. Why? Because there was the nurturing, right? Grandma would line all three boys up. She'd put bowls on the counter. She'd boil water. She'd put a package of jello in each one. And we'd sit in the counter on the stools and we'd stir jello. You know, and then when it get cool enough to drink, we'd drink it before it could ever go in the fridge. And, you know, we'd be in our sugar buzz and go bounce around the field for a while. But that was the nurturing part of a mother's house, not a feminist ideology. And it was not just tough love, but there was great kindness in two blessings that Naomi brings upon her daughters. The first there in verse 8. After she gives them that tough love of go and return, she goes on in the middle of the verse and says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And you remember that we talk about Ruth as one of the, the major love stories in Scripture. But the word love is never used. That's because the word kindly is there. That is the Hebrew word hesed for steadfast love, for loyal love. Often translated loving kindness in the New American Standard, that's not a great translation, just saying, because it doesn't indicate the longevity. It doesn't indicate the covenant nature of God's love. And that's what, he, that's what she is saying. May God deal kindly with you. May his hesed, may his steadfast love dwell upon you. This is the main, one of the main theological terms in this book. There's, there's no direct discussion of love but this. This is indicating one thing. It's indicating a salvific love because it is the covenant love. It is the covenant-keeping God whose steadfast love, whose abounding love is upon his people. And because of that, we see that her prayer is a prayer of salvation for these two Moabite women. That's huge. It's telling us that God is not just a God of the Jews. He is a God of all people. He is a God of all of his creation. And he indicates that clear back in the Pentateuch, but there's little pictures of it that keep coming up for us. We remember how in the time of the Lord, the Jews absolutely went off when it came to the Lord's 
discussion or even more appropriately to Paul or the apostles when they would talk about going to the Gentiles. They would just go crazy over that. But God's been telling them that the whole time. They just weren't listening. May that never be us. And this salvific intent for those who are not believers, is that not the cry of our hearts? You know, Karen and I, as I mentioned, had a blessed chance of visiting with Sissy yesterday. And we were sharing a little bit about um, our backgrounds and some of our family members and where they are and, and their unsaved condition. And, you know, it just keeps coming to mind. Isn't this our prayer? Isn't this our plea before God? Please bring them to yourself. Please bring them to the end of themselves. Well, that's what Ruth is doing. We pray that Christ would save them. Ruth is praying that they would understand the God of Hesed, the God of steadfast love. Beloved, it's the only prayer we better be praying for our lost loved ones because there's only way that they're coming to salvation. They're not choosing. They're not going to find it. They're not going to open their eyes. Only the Holy Spirit is going to strike them and bring them to repentance. Well, this shows, again, God's concern for the Gentiles. And this is one of these huge precursors. There's these little flashes. You know, when I was in junior high school, um, they were trying to do this uh, uh, national test. And Dillon, Montana was one of the places. And we, they, would flash, they were trying to see how quickly kids could recognize images on a screen. And so they would put us in a dark classroom and they'd flash these things on the screen. And they had them set up in a projector so that there were portions of a second that they were up. And then they'd have you write down what you saw so that they could determine how quickly you discerned what was going on. And that's what these are. These are flashes about what's coming. When we saw the connection of Elimelech back to Bethlehem, that was a flash. Be ready Something major coming about Bethlehem. When we see this aspect of the lineage that's being brought forward through the Gentiles, there's another flash. Be ready. It's another one we'll see in just a little bit. So this first blessing was her prayer to them. The second is in verse 9 where she said, May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. That desire that they find rest notice it was that the lord may the lord grant that you may find rest the lord grants rest to a lot of us and a lot of people sometimes we don't find it that's a very specific prayer that their eyes would be open do you ever feel like you're running so fast that you just miss things Ever been in a situation where the Lord's brought someone before you and you had a chance to talk about him and you just missed it because you're going so fast by? And you know, five seconds later, you're going, oh, wait a minute, that person asked me if I knew the Lord and I just kept going. I said, hi. What? But that's what happens. We move too quickly and we, and we go by these things. And that's what she's saying. May the Lord grant and may you find. And notice what? It is rest. It is peace. That peace which comes only through a relationship with God. This is a further extension of that salvific component. And then that brings about this loud and bitter weeping. We talked about that, about that last week. This isn't just weeping. This isn't just loud weeping. This is, this is 
full-out bellering. This is gut-wrenching crying. They are torn apart. And think of all that they have been through. They, they have all lost husbands. All understood that common affliction. And they are just, the, the, the source of the emotion is that loss. And the power behind emotion is inconceivable. If you don't understand it. And understand its source. Because its source is from God. So the first return volley occurs from the commitment to stay in Moab to the commitment to stay in Israel in verse 10. And we see in verse 10, And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. The verb return here occurs again, now the fourth time, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, now verse 10. And again, it identifies our whole section and what they should have done to begin with. Had they never left, had Elimelech realized what, was, what he had done and the error of his ways and led his family back to Israel and returned, he would not have experienced the wrath of God which took his life. The daughter-in-law's request is a powerful statement because of the danger of travel. You, you didn't just go, and we talked about last time, how you would go with a band of marauders, and you were, as a, as a woman, you were giving your life to them. We talked about how danger it was for, dangerous for Naomi to go. Think about a couple young, beautiful women. Yikes. Not good. They can't protect themselves. There are no men around. They know none of these. Not only that, they knew nothing of their destination. They're going to a completely foreign land you know i think i'm gonna go to bangladesh yeah karen you ready let's load up the boys and let's head to bangladesh you wouldn't do that it was way crazier for them because they're walking hundreds of miles to get from moab back to bethlehem and not only are they walking not only are they going with great danger but they also are going to the land of their enemy. Israel and Moab were sworn enemies against one another. And yet they're undaunted. But the tennis game isn't over. Naomi returns serve. She's shown herself to be a strong contender back in verses 8 to 9, as many women are. And she does so again in verses 11 to 13. This is where we'll pick up from last time. Two more times we have the command to return in these verses. Look at them with me, verse 11. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husband? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Here again, twice, that word return, our thematic connection through this whole text. And Naomi's same style of tough love, followed by tender compassion, occurs in each of her three statements in these three verses. The tough love is that command portion that's at the beginning of the first two verses, 11 and 12, and at the middle of verse 13. In both 11 and 12, she says, return my daughters. 
And then again, return my daughters. This is one of those things that it's difficult for us to convey into English. The, the best way to understand it is an exasperated father with a son who says, you will go out and take out the trash. And then when the son doesn't do it, he says, let me come over and tell you how you're going to take out the trash. And you begin to understand the emphasis that comes forth. When the, same, the exact same term is repeated twice, she is telling them, by no means shall you go with me. This is a foolish thing that you are proposing. To even consider as a woman of your age and stature coming on such a journey is a silly thing for you to endeavor into. By no means will you do this. Return, my daughters. And then in the middle of verse 13, know, my daughters. Again, the point of her statement is that she is rebuking them for their foolish consideration of following her. And based on those previous arguments of the unknown danger, the unknown destination, and the antagonism between these nations, it was a good merit. I mean, yeah, let's go ahead and go to this place that we don't know, where we might not make it, and we're probably going to be put immediately into slavery. Okay, that sounds fun. No, this is not a good idea. And then Naomi supports her commands and her strong argumentation in each verse and does so in beautiful argumentative style. I don't know about you men, but we never fight. (laughs) Well, we never have what we call intimate fellowship as opposed to fighting. But when there are those occasions that we have a disagreement, I am at such a loss in the debate process with my sweet wife. I come in and I think I've got all my ducks in a row as to this discussion point. And before long, I find myself unable to answer my wife. I don't know if any of you ever feel that way when you're discussing with your wives, but it just it seems like she just thinks faster and I think I've got all these answers. And before I've even got my answers made, she's like, no, that, that's really not a very good uh, argument. That doesn't really support what you're saying. And I'm kind of standing there going, ah, it seemed so good a few minutes ago. Well, that's what Naomi's doing here. She is, she is thinking ahead. She is showing this logical strategy of debate. Because the key element in debate is knowing your opponent's response. I don't know if any of you have ever watched any of the Christian debates on TV of recent. Uh, James White is a very prominent debater in our day and age, there was a gentleman who was even really much more superior, an apologist by the name of Greg Bonson. Uh, A little bit askew theologically, but probably one of the foremost apologists of his day. And he was a brilliant debater. And he debated one of the key members in uh, Darwinian evolution back in about, uh, I'm guessing it was the mid to late 80s. And there's a, it's on tape, you can get it. And, and before this debate has gone about 30 seconds, Bonson has absolutely destroyed his opponent because he knew all of the argumentation of evolution and he tears it down in his opening response. And so when the guy comes to give his opening statement, the evolutionist, there's nothing for him to say because it, he's already been fully discredited. 
And that's what Naomi's attempting to do here. She is taking whatever argument Ruth and Orpah may bring at her, and she's attempting to dismantle that argument before they ever bring it forward. And, and that's what we see here. She continues, could I have children? To paraphrase, the literal Hebrew is very interesting. Literally, could I have sons in my belly? Now, that doesn't seem particularly surprising to us, understanding all of those conceptions of childbirth. But the unique part is, it's not the normal wor- wor- bleh, excuse me, word for womb. Say that twice. It's not the word for womb, it is rather the word for the stomach or the viscera. And it's very purposeful. She's not saying that she would even be concerned to have children again. She's saying, there's no way that I could have children again. And, and most commentators believe she's likely indicating that she is past childbearing age. So she's making a statement to say, even if this were somehow possible, which physiologically it's not, then even then would you wait The logic behind her thinking is that these could be future husbands that may go on. But there's no reality of that. And this is another prophetic foreshadowing. This is another flash for us. What's she talking about? Remarrying sons in her womb, marrying another. Well, we'll see as we come along exactly what that means. This seems to be the only logical reason why these young women might want to stay with her. Why else would they go through this? Why else would they stay? For some reason, they were so in love and drawn to Naomi and doubtlessly in Naomi's mind to her sons, who were the connection, that they would be willing to wait for more children. She proposes the argument and then she continues to prepare to tear it down through the rest of her discussion in her mind. And in verse 12, she continues her line of argumentation. Go, another imperative command. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. She does, not only could she not physiologically, she does not desire to have a, a husband. It's not that there's an age where you're too old to remarry. That's not it at all. There's no desire in her heart. So why would she ever consider it? And they ought not be considering it either. And even if she did, they could not wait. And she discusses those components of ages. For even in verse 12 again, even if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? The answer is no, of course you wouldn't. Think about how old you would be. You're young women now, but if I were to become pregnant and have more children, even if the Lord blessed me with twins, by the time they grew old enough to become your new husbands, you would be perhaps too old to have children. So go, my daughters. By no means shall you return with me. She tells them that there's absolutely no way that this could happen. And that brings her argument to a close in verse 13. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? And again, of course not. And she answers her own question, no. What she's telling us here, this is the concept that she is introducing, that the author is introducing through her points of discussion 
of the Leverite marriage that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And in that text, there was the responsibility of, the old, of another brother to marry a widow if there had been no children born to that woman so as to continue on the family name in that lineage. Of course, assuming that he was not married, they, you know, they would never institute, God would never bring anything forward that was contrary to what his word had said. This was the idea of the kinsman redeemer. Note that word very carefully because we're going to see that carry tons of baggage as we move on in Ruth. Then at the end of verse 13, we're introduced to Naomi's next disappointment. Look at it there in verse 13b. For it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. There, there's really two possible interpretations here, and depending on what Bible version you have, the New American Standard carries one idea, the ESV and the King James and New King James carry another. And, and the translations would, would either be, she, she is either saying that she is too bitter of a woman for them. The, the literal translation here would be, it is very bitter to me than for you. It is very bitter to me than for you. So what does that mean? It either means that she is too bitter, that she is too angry, so she is looking for their best behalf, and she's saying, after all that I've endured, after the hand of the Lord being against me, I am too grumpy to, for you to be hanging around me. The other translation, which is brought forward in, in those other versions, she is saying that my bitterness is greater than yours. And thus, your presence would be a reminder for me. So in one case, she's looking out for herself, in the other, she's looking out for them. Whatever translation you have, it's not the impact of the translation, but what the meaning is. And the meaning is basically that you can't go with me because this is not a good situation. She's acknowledging that she is a bitter woman. Do you know what it's like to be around somebody that's grumpy and bitter all the time? You become grumpy and bitter. You know, when, when my boys were first uh, born and, and I was saved, uh, we used to watch some videos with them, some VHS cassettes, cassettes called um, Veggie Tales. I learned most of my theology from Veggie Tales. And yes, I will acknowledge it to my church. Um, because in the early days, there actually was some pretty good depth behind some of it. And there was one particular one called the angry eyebrows. And these angry eyebrows flew around and everywhere they went, everybody else just got angry. Isn't that how anger is? Does it not dump on whoever is there and they absorb it and they become that way too? Why does 1 Peter tell us not to return evil for evil or insult for insult but give a blessing instead? Because our natural tendency is to return evil for evil and insult for insult. Oh yeah? You think that's? Well, I'll one-up that. Ever do that? Well, that's what she's saying here. I am too bitter. Proverbs 18.3 says, And with dishonor comes scorn. She had received much dishonor, 
and she was very scorned and scornful. Then at the end of verse 13, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. In case there was any question about Naomi's problem, she acknowledges here, this is what has happened. This is a result of the hand of the Lord. She understands that God has brought this. The famine in Israel, Elimelech's death, Malon and Chilion's death, her daughter-in-law's barrenness, all as a result of the hand of the Lord. And Naomi proclaims this. Whether this is theological astuteness on her part and resolve to accept the situation, or whether it is sin, we can't tell at this point. We'll get indications shortly. But what is clear is she is acknowledging the sovereignty of God. How important is it for us to acknowledge God's sovereignty in trials? Again, we can, we can understand his, his sovereignty and rejoice in it when things are going well. When we get the, the blessing of, of the house deal all coming together, we, when we get the good news at the doctor's office, um, you know, we're, we easily rejoice in God's sovereignty in the good things. It's the bad things that become the challenge for us. How important is this for us to understand? To understand all that God is doing. It's easy for us to recognize God's in control. You don't have to have a deep theology if you know the Lord to realize that He is in control. The question becomes how we view His control. How do we respond when things don't really go our way are we bitter are we mara angry resentful rejecting wanting to change questioning god or do we realize that despite our wildest conception how we cannot believe and understand that this is somehow going to work out for god's good but we will accept that God is causing all things to work for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. That's the difference. That's the difference in our lives. It's not understanding God's sovereignty. It's what we do with it. It's the boots to the ground application. Do we get bitter and say, Ooh! or do we say, Lord, let me just drop to my knees and, and just come to the only one who can do anything about this? and to praise you for it, and to rejoice in the trial and the difficulty. Naomi strongly returns the shot, and verse 14 is her final swing at the first half of the verse. And they lifted up their voices, and they wept again. Again, this loud crying. This is Orpah's goodbye kiss to her mother. But Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. Orpah's departed and she's gone back to her people, but Ruth has held firm. We have much left in our discussion as we consider these components of Ruth's faithfulness as we look into our next point. But before we get there, as our time is, is near out, let me just ask you to consider some of the distinctions that we've seen in this text. The facets of commitment that we are to emulate. 
as you consider all of these facets and the things that are going on in your life, how would you respond? When you understand that there is difficulty that goes on in your life, do you stop and consider whether there may be areas in your own life that need examined? Whether there is yet something in which you need to be more faithful? That may not be the issue, but is that not where we should start? Should we not always come before the Lord to consider our own heart, to see if there is sin in our own lives, to see if there are ways that we are living in rebellion to God, whether openly or unknowingly? I think that needs to be our first call at every turn. Facets of of commitments here which are not good that we don't want to emulate. These very special aspects of commitment. And ultimately, beloved, what matters is your commitment to the Lord and to the church. Because those are the only thing that's going to go forward. It doesn't matter what we accrue. It doesn't matter the house that we have. It doesn't matter if it's paid off. It doesn't matter the cars. It doesn't matter the bank account we can leave to our children. The only thing that matters is what we do for the Lord. Those are the only things of permanence. Those are the only things that are going to go forward. And so those are the things that we have to ask ourselves. Naomi, despite her bitterness, understood that she needed to return and to be faithful to the Lord. We need to make certain that we are in the Word so that it is bathing over us, so that we know what God's Word tells us about obedience. Because I assure you, if there are areas in your life where you are disobedient to God and you are in His Word, He is going to reveal those to you. And you might say, you know how long it takes me to read through that book? Yes, I know. I've read through it a few times. It takes a while. God will supernaturally reveal to you areas of your life if you are faithful to be in this Word and to be before Him in prayer. Because that is what really matters. So how are you doing in your area of commitment to Christ? I know well in many cases, I'm so thankful that you're all here when we get together on a Wednesday night, and yet there is always still more for me as well as for all of you to do. So I pray that that's what you'll look for. I pray that you will find your commitment to God and His Word and anything that is lacking in your life anything that may cause you to become bitter and that you'll cast it from you so the joy of the Lord may be your strength and that you may walk in it every day of your life in the full magnificence of our great God and King.